Kristen K. Wagoner serves as general counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. She oversees the U.S. Legal Division and Communications, which includes more than 100 attorneys who engage in litigation, public advocacy, and legislative support. Kristen's taken a lead role in some of the country's most challenging religious liberty cases. Kristen, I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to talk with you, and I'm so inspired by the work that you and your colleagues do at ADF. So thanks for being on Takeaways. Well, thank you for having me. So you, you've litigated so many different types of cases, civil litigation, um, constitutional law. Uh, ADF has been so involved in Supreme Court cases. I'm curious, what inspired you to get into the legal profession? Well, I didn't have anybody in my family that was a lawyer, but I had a great father. My dad, um, he just, from the time I was born, he talked to me about God's purpose in my life and that I needed to find it. And that if I didn't, I would be wasting my life. And that led to me just praying about it. And at about the age of 12, um, I just felt like God was directing me to become a lawyer to defend religious freedom and Christian organizations. And that played out in ways I didn't always expect. Um, but, you know, I think it's every parent's role to help their children understand that they're no different than Esther or Deborah or David or Nehemiah, mm. the heroes of the Bible. We all are called to something God prepares in advance for us to do. Which I think is so great and so necessary because we often think of, as parents, we think of a calling from God into the ministry or to become a missionary, to become some sort of a religious leader or teacher. But do we really need more lawyers? I mean, is the world <laughs> a better place with more lawyers? So you feel that this is a calling. Oh, I absolutely do. I think the world is a better place with Jesus-loving lawyers because God is a God of justice and truth. Those things mm. go together as does compassion. And so it's been my privilege to be able to serve in this way. That's awesome. And I agree with you a thousand percent. So ADF um, has had nine successful cases before the court in the past seven years, including the famous Hobby Lobby case, which allowed corporations to opt out of covering contraceptives based on religious beliefs. Um, Help us a little bit with this. What, what tipped the scale in your favor when arguing that case? Well, I first have to tell you there's an update. We've actually had 13 Supreme Court wins in the last nine years now. Wow. And we just got one wow. granted. We've got one coming up too, but we can talk about that later. Um, in terms of the Hobby Lobby victory, uh, we represented a, a small business owner called Conestoga Woods. And that case was litigated at the Supreme Court with the Hobby Lobby case. It's known as the Hobby Lobby case. And basically it involved closely held corporations, family businesses who were facing a rule that the Obama administration passed that basically said that businesses and even eventually nonprofits would need to include abortifacients in their employee insurance policies. And so for the owners of Hobby Lobby, as well as Conestoga Woods, they said that that violates our convictions. We can't participate in the taking of human life. And that case went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we were able to win it there, which ensures that families are able to live out their convictions. They don't have to leave their First Amendment rights or their religious beliefs at home when they go to their office. You've also successfully argued cases defending religious freedoms, like the case of the Christian baker who refused to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. What made you take on that case? That was kind of unique. That's not the pro-life issue. Why did you guys take that on? 
Well, at ADF, we're committed to generational wins, and that means that it's our job um, as Americans to steward freedom during our generation and hand that freedom to the next generation. And I think that the case Masterpiece Cake Shop um, frequently is misrepresented in the media. What was involved in that case was whether an artist, a cake artist, who's using words on the cakes, who's um, hand sketching and painting cakes, can be forced to express a message that violates his deeply held convictions. Mm. Um, and the Supreme Court, we won that case in a seven to two decision, said that that violated Jack Phillips's right of free exercise of his religion. Um, and really, I think it would be great to talk a little more about how that case came to be, yeah. because it started in 2012. And now we're seeing a very similar case that the court just agreed to hear, which is called 303 Creative. And that is involving the same issues, but on the free speech side of things. Some people might be tempted to think, well, it's just a cake. It's a, who, why, is this, why are we making such a big deal about this? Why would this go to the Supreme Court? It's a cake. It's icing. But you're now saying that that serves as a, maybe a precedent for what will happen in the future. Why is, that, why is it so important? Because that's how the law works. That's how our justice system works in America. Um, so first of all, when we think about decisions that have been made when we don't stand for our freedom, those decisions lead to future decisions and an expansion of that precedent. And I think what's critical to the Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling is to understand that Jack Phillips serves everyone who walks into his store. The objection wasn't to just designing a cake. Um, that couple could have any cake in his store and, and purchased it. Instead, it's about being able to choose the message and not speak a message that violates your core convictions. So really, that issue transcends our beliefs on marriage. We might disagree on whether we design the cake or not design the cake, but we all want to be able to speak messages that are consistent with who we are and what our beliefs are. Some cases are important, but not all cases make it all the way to the Supreme Court. What was it about the Hobby Lobby case and the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that got through the door in front of those justices? Well, most cases don't make it to the Supreme Court. And in fact, just in this last term, we had two Supreme Court victories, but it was the term, it's the second least term in the, the history, I think it is, that the court took the fewest amount of cases. So it's actually, the court's taking even fewer cases than it used to take. Mm -hmm. um, when you're arguing for the court to take a case, you don't have a right to do that, to have them take the case. So you really need to establish that there's a national issue, that the court needs to expend its limited resources to resolve this issue for the whole nation. And um, that's why those cases were important. And that there's there's essentially a grave constitutional issue at stake mm. um, is also another way of, of getting the court to take the case. And that was true in both of those cases. How do you prepare when you know you're going to be arguing a case that is essentially um, dealing with two competing moralities? Because you know the people on the other side of the issue probably have an entirely different worldview and a different base for their morality. And they're arguing from that morality. Well, yes, they are, but the point of free speech and religious freedom is that it doesn't just protect my beliefs or your beliefs, it should protect all beliefs, the right for everyone to be able to explore ideas, to test ideas, and then to live consistent with those ideas peacefully, to pursue truth. And if we don't have those First Amendment freedoms and they don't apply to everyone, we actually even can't have a stable 
society or a democracy. I mean, we can look right now at what's happening in the world mm. and see the implications of denying people these liberties that are inherent to who they are as, as God's creatures and God's created order. Now, somebody told me that you often wear a silver bracelet that has something inscribed on it for such a time as this. Um, <laughs> is, is that true from the book of Esther? There it is. Right here. I have two bracelets that I wear. That's one. And the second is one that reminds me when we started Jack's case that we need to see it through. Um, and so far, we've been working on that issue for a decade. Um, so I have that bracelet on today as well. How do you prepare when you're going into a case and you know that you're going to be arguing something that is incredibly controversial? Like uh, when you were asked whether you believe it's possible for a person to be transgender, you know that you're just going to, you're stirring up the hornet's nest here and this is not going to be easy. How do you mentally prepare for that? Well, it's interesting that you asked me that. I was at Yale Law School last week, um, and, and you may see some articles come out about the protests that took place there. Um, and that issue was a big issue. But I think that what it underscores for me is the importance of not only being willing to defend the right to speak the truth, which we've talked about, to defend our mission is to keep the door open for the gospel. So to, to keep that door open for all of us, but we also need to walk through that door and share that truth. And so I look for opportunities to not only share why these freedoms are important for everyone, but why actually following biblical principles and recognizing that biological distinctions matter, that biology matters, that boys and girls are different, that that actually contributes to human flourishing. Mm. Uh, we know that what the scripture says about all these different issues, but we also know that God provides these guardrails for a reason, because they help human flourishing. And in the issue of transgender individuals, it's primarily women and girls who will suffer the most if we adopt this radical ideology. And that's why I think you're seeing even some who progressives who would never agree on any other issue with someone like ADF agreeing with us on this issue of um, men essentially identifying as women and vice versa, because it actually, it harms humanity and families. When your opponents in the courtroom try to portray you as the villain, and that you're perhaps weaponizing the right to religious freedom in order to harm other people, how do you, how do you deal with that? When that comes up, I try to ex explain again those basic truths, which is, first of all, these freedoms that we advocate for, they're not only in our Constitution and our First Amendment, um, but they're innate to just human dignity, to an inalienable right means that it is present in all of us, and we should all have the right to explore the meaning of life and to be able to peacefully live consistent with it. And so I'm not trying to deny others that right, but I am trying to ensure that those who want to essentially crush beliefs and individuals and purge them from the public square who hold traditional beliefs on sexuality, that that, that violates the Constitution. And um, the way, again, you get to pursuing truth and finding those answers is by being able to speak freely. We're not afraid to be in the marketplace and to convey ideas and to debate ideas. And for those who would seek to weaponize the law against us, I think that demonstrates maybe that they're not interested in pursuing truth. Does all of this ever take a, a toll on you personally? It can if you don't have the right perspective. 
Um, and, you know, I think that God is so faithful in all of our lives. We talk a lot at ADF about we want to litigate excellently. We want to win at the Supreme Court. We want to be fierce advocates that when the ACLU or the human rights campaign sees we're in a case, they are worried sick. But we also want to be faithful in our witness and to leave those results up to the Lord. The outcome is in his hands. And I've seen so many cases where we may have lost at certain points um, and seeing God use those points in our clients' lives, in their friends' lives, to literally bring people to him or to save babies who, you know, be able to witness to yeah. those who would be wanting to have an abortion. He will use all things for his glory. And that inspires me. You're such a great representative for ADF and for all of us as you are contending for ideas in the public square. Kristen, um, that's awesome. God's using you in a monumental way. What does it feel like to lead cases that are, are literally making history? In so many ways, it's very surreal. Um, but I, I want to go back to kind of what you, you started with and has been a theme in some of what you said, which is how do you do this work balance? And, you know, really, we, we provide that air cover, but it's the human heart that has to be moved. And, and I would just again say that in doing that, our lives travel on many different paths. And so being able to have this be a legacy for my kids and mm -hmm. my family, um, to have them be trained up in this way and to understand it and to know that we're impacting future generations. I, I mean, it's just the most inspiring work that there could be. There's so many stories, Kirk, that are just of people living out a dynamic faith of having those conversations at the kitchen table with their mm -hmm. kids, of influencing people on these issues, not only about salvation, but again, about how biblical principles promote human flourishing. And, and that's what keeps me going. And I just pray that we're faithful. I want to be the absolute best lawyer and have the best legal team there is. But ultimately, we know these wins come solely from the hand of the Lord. Well, if for whatever reason I find myself in court, uh, I know who to call. Kristen, <laughs> uh, we appreciate your commitment to defending our faith and freedom of expression. When we come back, we're gonna talk about the religious landscape of America, where we're headed, where we need to be, and what it's gonna to take to get there. We'll tackle that and more right after this. We're back with Kristen Wagoner discussing a trend that we're seeing, the push to extinguish the religious freedoms in our nation. Kristen, why do you think this is happening? Who has a problem with praying with your kids and thanking God for every good thing that you have in your life? Why would anybody want to extinguish religious freedoms? Well, I think as a nation, we have had fewer people ascribe and affirm religion, which means that they have less sympathy towards people of faith. Mm. And we're seeing more laws passed. And so when you combine those things, I think it also is contributed to by this new ideology that is essentially critical theory. Um, and it's the idea that we should divide people um, rather than we're all in this together. It's divided by different um, factors or characteristics that we might have. And the ideology really says that um, anyone who would suggest that there's ob objective truth, um, that we don't define ourselves, that we don't get to follow every desire that we have, anyone who would say there's objective truth, those ideas should be purged from the public square. 
that those ideas aren't worthy of being heard. Um, and then, of course, what we hear is you're passing judgment and you shouldn't do that. When even what we used to hear a decade ago even was live and let live, right? It's that we should all have these freedoms. Um, but now we're actually seeing those who are in power, whether it's corporate elites, whether it's government officials, really weaponize the law and try to silence people of faith who would want to speak or live out their beliefs um, in a way that is honoring to God and, and really consistent with American tradition. Do you think that there might even be a more sinister Orwellian motive behind the silencing of religious freedoms and beliefs? Uh, because then religion suggests that there might be a power that's higher and more authoritative than the government itself. I'm rereading Animal Farm these days, and it's, it's freaking me out because, uh, you know, the, the, the pigs are in control. I think that there is an Orwellian component to it. And in fact, we just have a, a case, as I said, that's going up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the dissent in the lower court, who sided with us, said, this is an Orwellian position that this court is taking. And we know that Orwellian uh, decisions are going to lead to further results that are Orwellian. So I tend to think of um, Huxley, uh, you know, and, and the brave new world that he talked about, and that we are giving up our freedoms, we're giving up even our beliefs to have convenience and comfort and to essentially be led and not have to think for ourselves. Um, and, and that's a concern too. But going back to this higher authority, I think you're spot on in that being a significant component. When I say objective truth, one of the things that we have been talking about here at ADF is the need to educate people on the concept of objective truth and why that matters, why it has value. Like we're having to convince people that no, Truth is important, and here's why. Honesty is important, here's why. And objectivity, uh, objective truth matters, and here's why. And, and that's a new battle, I think, for all of us. Yeah, not to mention just the, the, the contradiction on the face of that statement that objective truth is, uh, is wrong uh, because they believe that that itself is objectively true. Yes, that is exactly what's happening. And I would just encourage those who are, are listening to think about what is my role in that? Yeah. I mean, for such time as this, we talked about that. This is not a surprise to God that we're here. Um, he created us. He chose us for this moment. Mm -hmm. So again, while we are arguing that we should be able to speak that truth, that we have a place in the public square, that we should be contributing to the discussion, that yeah. we have an inalienable right to do that we actually need to speak that truth to convince others and to allow the Holy Spirit to have opportunities to move in their hearts as to why these principles are important to the common good and to human flourishing. Yeah, isn't, isn't it exciting, Kristen? I, I think it was Shakespeare that said, all the world is a stage and we're players on the stage to think that the author of the great story is God himself, and it's a great story, and it has a great ending. But like with any good story, there's gonna be rebellion. There's gonna be times where you think all hope is lost, and then against all odds, heroes rise up. And you're one of those heroes, and, and God's placed us here for such a time as this. Put us on the stage right now during these difficult times so that as men and women of faith, we can rise up and speak the truth in love and we can play our role well. I wanna talk uh, uh, for a moment about a couple of cases going on uh, that ha have been in play here in the United States, like um, 
the couple of sets of Wisconsin parents that have filed a lawsuit against Kettle Moraine School District to challenge its policy that allows minor students to change their name and gender pronouns at school without parental consent. Why is that important? Well, parental rights are under assault in this nation, and we need to take it seriously. My concern is now that the masks are off in schools, um, you know, this this concern that parents are have where they're starting to pay attention to what their children are, are being taught and they're exposed to that through the Zoom calls is going to fade away, and that's a grave mistake. Those types of policies are being taught in the school curriculum regularly um, all over the United States. And many parents, I'll hear parents say, well, I live in Texas or Tennessee. This is not happening here. Baloney. It is happening across the United States, and we have the evidence to prove it, which is why we've filed these lawsuits. And it really comes down to critical theory. Um, and the concept of critical theory is that there are victims and oppressors, there are good guys and bad guys, that we don't all have inalienable rights, that on the gender identity front, which is the case you referred to, that you're not born a boy or a girl, that biology doesn't matter, and that actually the state has the right to make decisions on behalf of the parent. So ultimately, this is a parental rights issue, but the gender identity ideology at the core of the case you mentioned is so corrosive to all of our First Amendment rights and to the health and well-being of our children. It is a serious threat that we need to understand and to stand against. I, I know a lot of parents are saying, what can we do about this? I mean, um, do, I, do I pull my kids out of school? Um, do I support ADF? What, what, what can we do? I think that you know each family needs to consider their own options, but you shouldn't be naive to think that just because you're not seeing it in the papers that a child brings home, that it's not going on. The policy that you referenced in Wisconsin is just a school policy, and it allows teachers to lie to parents, essentially, about a child's gender confusion. In that case, a 12-year-old girl was suffering from confusion, and the school refused to abide by what the parents asked for, and they did have to pull the child. I think we also need to consider that our children are being instructed six hours a day in these schools. So if you can pull them, pull them and get them into a school that has solid Christian education. Um, and even if you're not a believer, not a Christian, in a school that isn't set on indoctrinating children in woke ideology, which is what mo most of our public schools are doing right now. In another incident, uh, Mississippi school official forced a third grader to take off her Jesus Loves Me mask. Uh, what do we need to know about that case? I wish you could meet that third grader. Lydia is just the most amazing nine-year-old girl. And it was during the, the COVID situation. She went to school. Of course, she had to have a face covering. And other students got to have writing on their masks. But the school essentially targeted Lydia's religious speech that said, Jesus loves me. Um, it's a long and winding case in many respects. But I think what will surprise people the most is that when she was told to remove her Jesus Loves Me mask, she was also told by the school that that was consistent with its policy. And what Lydia's mom learned later was that they were deceiving her and that that hadn't actually been in the policy. Mm. Students at public schools, they have the right to be able to express their faith in their private expression, and the school does not have the right to target people of faith or target religious messages. And that happens all too often. So it's a privilege to represent Lydia. And the school has changed its policy because of her stand, although the litigation continues today. Can you tell us about the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case? Why is that important? 
Well, that's a critical case in our effort to protect life. Um, in Roe versus Wade, as well as in a subsequent decision called Casey, um, the Supreme Court essentially made up its own rules on whether abortion was protected in the Constitution and when and how. And it's, it's a complicated path because, again, they're just making it up. It's not based in the text or the history of our nation or our Constitution. And so the Dobbs case is a case involving a Mississippi law that essentially restricts abortion after 15 weeks. And if you know anything about fetal development, you know that at 15 weeks, that baby is a baby. Um, there are, you know, the baby may feel pain. There are eyelids, hands, fingerprints. All of these things are there. Essentially, the importance of that case isn't, though, just limited to protecting babies that will, will be in their mother's womb from 15 weeks until birth. But in order to rule for Mississippi in that case, the court will likely have to reverse Roe versus Wade, which established a constitutional right to abortion. So it is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to protect life and to essentially overturn Roe, which is a horrendous decision by the Supreme Court. Now, can you clarify that for us? If Roe versus Wade gets overturned by the Supreme Court, does that make abortion illegal across the country? Or does it just push the decision to each state to make up its mind? It pushes the decision to each state. It essentially says the Constitution doesn't give, the federal Constitution doesn't give a right to abortion, which means next we would look at the state's rights and what the states do. So really what it does is prompt a discussion in each state and potentially a decision to decide whether to protect life or not to protect life, which again underscores the importance of hearts and minds, Kirk. It's our job as people to have those conversations with our neighbors, to influence our kids so that we can continue to have a pro-life culture. Do you think that America is in trouble with this woke ideology in the direction that we're headed? If, if we don't reverse course and get back on the right track, uh, where could all of this lead? I think that the Bible tells us to love God and love our neighbor. And those are the two most important uh, instructions that he gives us. And so I think loving God means that we're faithful to the word, we're faithful to our beliefs, and those beliefs actually protect religious freedom and free speech and human dignity for everyone, even those who don't believe as we do. Loving our neighbor means expressing those beliefs in a compassionate and kind way, but it also means standing up when we see that laws are passed and the culture is going in a direction that brings harm, brings harm to children, and, and we will reap what we sow. So on the one hand, I'm not a fan of the direction that we seem to be heading, but I also think about the example of Pharaoh and Moses, where you know he's out killing the Hebrew boys and one of them's living under his roof. We don't know what God has for this season. What we do know is that he asks us to be faithful, to be winsome in our speech, and to be witness bearers for him. And my role is, is here in the law. Your role is in advocating in the many different things you do. And those who are listening all have a role that none of us can play. History teaches us that it's often during times of moral decline, of economic depression and spiritual apathy, that the family of faith finally wakes up. And you see that behind the scenes, God is using these external pressures to uh, awaken and alarm his people and help us to remember that when we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. And the path of obedience is the path of blessing. 
And I think we are teed up for revival. And I am so thankful for you, Kristen, and for ADF and all that you're doing to protect our freedoms. You're uh, truly making a mark on the nation. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.